Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Teach in the Department of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Lethbridge, and I'm a board member of SACBA. I just remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones. Um, as you probably all know, the session is being recorded. Um, for those of you who are new, I would remind you to, uh, you need to pay for lunch. It's $11 um, in the little black basket that's in the middle of the table. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization, and we rely on the contributions uh, of its members and uh, session attendees to continue its work. Uh, so if you are not yet a member and you are interested in pur purchasing a membership, I invite you to see Lisa Lambert um, at lunchtime or after, after the end of today. Uh, I want to thank our, many of our partners, the University of Lethbridge for support and distribution of notices, um, Country Kitchen Catering for all the great lunches, Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions on Sundays at 4.30, and to the Lethbridge Herald as well as other media for covering SACPA events. So the outline uh, for our session today is um, half an hour of the speech, of the talk by our speaker, then half an hour for lunch, and then at 1 o'clock to 1.30, we'll have a Q&A period. Um, so it's my pleasure to actually introduce to you our speaker for today, uh, Dr. Dan Johnson, um, who is a professor of environmental science at the University of Lethbridge. Uh, he teaches biogeography. Impacts of Climate, Sustainable Development, Environmental Science for First Nations, Transition Program, and Data Analysis. Uh, Dr. Johnson wrote one of the first position statements by a scientific study on the teaching of evolution and argued the case uh, through to a, su a successful vote and ratification. He has also served on species at risk recovery teams in Canada, developed biocontrol agents for sustainable agriculture, and has also conducted environmental research in Africa, North America, and Asia. Finally, uh, although I'm sure this isn't the final thing about him, he is also a member of the Alberta Environmental Appeals Board. So I ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. Johnson. Thanks, and I have to return the, uh, the gratitude and thank SACPA for this great topic because it was chosen by them, and I think it's a very interesting one. And in fact, uh, interesting thing occurred to me as I was preparing to talk. When I moved here in 1983, I saw some letters in the paper. There was like a campaign at the time about evolution and creationism. And I thought, well, what's going on here? So I... Uh, just coming from UBC in Vancouver, I wrote a letter to the newspaper about evolution, explaining what it was, and I got invited to give a talk at the library. I gave a talk at the public library exactly 30 years ago on the same topic. <laughs> so here we are again, and it's going to go on and on forever, uh, but I think solely it'll be put to rest, and you might want to be on the winning side. It's up to you. Uh, but there's my title slide. Uh, it's a photograph of a grasshopper I took when I was in Israel. I got an invitation from my son to go and help him there and took this photo. And I added uh, a little thought here that I didn't mention to, to Lisa and Knut. Uh, I don't actually believe in evolution. Um, and I hope that's true of uh, other people here with uh, science background. Because we don't believe in it. Uh, it's all based on the facts. If the facts turn up uh, that it's wrong, then it's wrong. Uh, I don't necessarily jump to any conclusions about it. We have to 
base our understanding on what we see and what the facts are. So I don't really believe in it. So if someone says, do you believe in it? The answer is no, that's not how we do it. But I'll talk about life a bit and explain why that uh, leads us into an evolutionary view of life. Life is interesting. It's interesting, it's not always convenient, it's not always kind or, or fair, but it, it's interesting. And you don't have to read anything on any of these slides. They're just there to remind me to tell you the salient features. There's some interesting animal shots in here, but life has a lot of diversity, huge number of species. I mean, in Darwin's day, maybe there were, he, he imagined 10 or 20,000, 30,000, they didn't know. But way back then, he predicted that eventually we would discover that all of these are linked, all of these are related, and at the time it seemed absolutely bizarre. So here we are now with 10 million species, and all the evidence we find in DNA, code of life, biogeography, the fossils, we can't find any of it that doesn't support that view that everything is related. And that is a actually a deeply moving view of life on this earth. We are all part of it, and it's, it's, it's real, it's scientific, so it's very interesting. Now, what is the evidence? Let's talk about that quickly and get it out of the way, maybe, and then we'll talk about things. Essentially now, in the 21st century, it's, it's massive. Uh, like I said, Darwin's work predicted that these things were related, and it's turned out to be true. Now, why is that? Well, the fossil evidence is huge now and very, very detailed. Uh, biogeography supports evolution. Everything we know about the distribution of life on Earth, how things have moved around, ridden on the continents, or jumped continents, and done the things they do, supports evolution. Anatomy, comparative anatomy, has been a science going back to the 1700s. And it supports evolution, and mostly the genetic code. DNA, it's all written in there. We can now track the relationships between species and organisms like we can between members of a family. Okay, let's talk a little bit about each one. Fossils. <clears throat> like I said, uh, huge numbers of fossils, and I'll give you one nice example, are in the museums and in universities and so on of the world. There's an example that came up recently I'll come to in a second. Uh, we study these things not because we like dinosaurs, although, of course, we do, um, but uh, because we're trying to track how things have changed over time and why the ribs on that stegosaurus are not that different from the ribs on the human next to them. In Alberta, we have finds all the time. We have the black beauty that was found out by Pincher Creek, Tyrannosaurus. We have these marine reptiles found in the oil sands. Turns up all the time. It's on our minds. Putting all these fossils together, we have so much more than we had in the 19th and 18th, 17th centuries. Evolution of whales, for example. Example, why do the old fossils have hind legs, the new ones don't? The closer you get to the modern day, the smaller and smaller they are. Eventually, there are none there. There's now a sequence of fossils, some of which, by the way, are found in the Sahara Desert, uh, which really lays it out well. This was a land predator, in and out of water, you can use isotopic analysis of the bones to, uh, and other things to find out whether they lived in fresh water or salt water. And over time, uh, we ended up with the whales we have today down at the bottom. But there you see their ancestors up near the top. And they're related to hippos. Here's the interesting new thing that came up just yesterday in the news. Uh, a Jurassic uh, avian, land, avian uh, dinosaur, meaning winged, 
a bird-like, from China, resolves the early phylogenetic, meaning genealogical, history of birds. Well, what is this fossil? Before I talk about it, I'll mention, you know, we have a famous, famous paleontologist, obviously, here in Alberta, Philip Curry, who did a lot of uh, work in China. Uh, and I'm pleased to point out with this photo that he attended the Canada-wide Science Fair at the University of Lethbridge recently. And, of course, he was one of the founders of the Tyrrell Museum and, and uh, has made many, many contributions. Uh, and I'll talk about this nature paper now, the implications of the bird, but I thought I'd point out to you, people who are interested in history that the same subject was in the very first issue of Nature, the most prestigious scientific journal in the world, on birds and reptile links, written by T.H. Huxley. There's a take-home message. If anyone here knows everything I talk about today, you probably didn't know that. Okay, why do we say birds are related to dinosaurs? Well, actually, many people say birds are dinosaurs. Uh, the lines through the anatomy, the fossils, and even the DNA point back to groups of dinosaurs that, uh, that they've not only descended from, but still actually belong to. They are the survivors of the dinosaur lines. Um, maybe I'll just move past these definitions and into the pictures, because I, I, I realize we're short on time before talking. Now, Archaeopteryx, you've all heard of. Um, even the most experienced people in the room um, have heard of it, but but, but very few actually were there when they read about it in the, in the newspaper because it was 1861 when the first uh, Archaeopteryx was pulled out of the, out of the uh, quarries. Richard Owen described it in 1863 and said this is definitely a half-bird, half-dinosaur thing. And Archaeopteryx uh, indicates that the dinosaur line didn't just quit. Of the many dinosaur lines... Most did go extinct, except one or two that became the birds. Now, why do we care about this? Oh, by the way, this is a beautiful photograph of an artist I wanted to recommend, Carl Buell. If anyone likes wildlife photography, this is his version of Archaeopteryx lithographica. Um, flying. Here's one he did of a giant South American bear. By the way, here's one he, he recently did on a rat-sized ancestor, uh, the, the most distant in the past ancestor of, of man and beast, they call it, in the New York Times. That's it, eating a cockroach, very dignified. Our, our uh, most remote ancestor uh, in the line that we can identify. <clears throat> Although naturally, evolution says we not only share a common genealogy with this animal, but also with a, a squid and a, and a bee and many other things. But here's an interesting thing I thought I'd mention about Carl Buell while I'm on the topic, and then I'll pop back. He actually did this fantastic painting of a reptile that was awarded uh, by Science, another prestigious journal, and New York Times, and many others, because actually the name, Obamadon gracilis, means uh, uh, the sharp-toothed Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, this is uh, Charles Darwin by Carl Buell, and we've used it at the university in some of our little meetings where we celebrate his birthday and so on. Now back to the bird. 
Why do we care about this bird? It probably didn't even fly. They named it the dawn bird uh, from Aurora and Ornus Shui. It lived about 160 million years ago. There's the fossil, and there's a, a painting of the bird beside the fossil. The, the uh, wings are not, are not uh, probably flight capable, but the, the feathers are definitely there. Now, why do we care about this? Is this a missing link? This just explains the name. Is this a missing link? Well, there have been others. Here's another bird, dinosaur cross. Not really a cross, but I mean, that's what you'd think if you looked at it for the first time. Birds are living dinosaurs. That's how paleontologists now see it, and they took a while to come to that conclusion because they share so many uh, common things in common and yet uh, have diverged. Here's how small some of them could be. This one is actually called Bambi Raptor because it is small. Uh, there it is, uh, apparently uh, a body about to feast on one of our ancestors. And then you can see the relative size to people. That photo of it with a mammal down there reminded me of this cartoon that I found on the internet of a, of a raptor, a feathered raptor in the past chasing a mammalian ancestor of some of us, probably all. And then a little later, maybe uh, uh, the dinosaurs are not doing so well and the mammals are doing better. And then there's a turnaround, possibly in the late Jurassic or Cretaceous. And now in the, in the Cenozoic, uh, the mammals are chasing the chickens. Anyway, what's strange to me about this bird is yet another missing link, yet another missing link, yet another missing link. We already have dozens, scores of species of feathered dinosaurs. These are all various raptors, and one is even a velociraptor with feathers. So it's nothing really new. And uh, what bothers me about it is uh, the demand for missing links, another one and another one and another one. And as I'll mention later, really when you get down to it, Every species is a missing link. It's a missing link between the one before and the one after. Uh, are we ever going to get them all? I guess not, but uh, because there are so many millions. I'll give you an example of uh, a little more on fossil evidence that has to do with our area. I want to recommend Field BC. Uh, the photos um, in themselves are worth looking at. The hikes are even better. Here's the kind of fossils that are up there. Invertebrate fossils that stunned people um, in the last century, the diversity, and also the fact that many of those lines of it went extinct. In fact, the great majority of them are just gone. Uh, Anomalocaris, it took a long time to figure out what it even was. Uh, this is written up in the book by Stephen Jay Gould, Wonderful Life. We don't see many five-eyed vacuum cleaner monsters anymore, but that's exactly what it was in that ecosystem, crushed down with mud for us to find much later. Those lines are gone. But this line actually had a notochord and might be uh, relatively closely related to the modern vertebrates. And they made great pancakes. When I took my kids to uh, uh, see the Burgess Shale, we decided we would make Anomalocaris, Opabinia, Trilobites, and... Uh, Spined Wyaxia with blueberries and uh, and uh, Smarties and little little uh, cake stars. Now the third line I mentioned of evidence was biogeography. Uh, biogeography, the distribution of life on Earth, really does track evolution very well. We can't really find we look for. Everybody wants to find them because then it would be famous and it would be interesting. But you look for discrepancies and problems and how we might explain how uh, placental mammals in South America declined and, and they established uh, 
so many different animals on Australia and so on. But even looking farther back, hundreds of millions of years, when the continents were gather, together, the fossils were laid down, the continents divided, they all match up. It's really almost impossible to find discrepancies. The relationship between biogeography, continental drift, plate tectonics, and evolution is almost perfect. Uh, so that's another line of evidence. And by the way, Darwin, one of the things about Darwin was he's considered the father of biogeography. That's a, a photo of the beagle. I threw it in to remind myself uh, I brought the ship. I made the ship for students. When I realized a lot of students said, why did Dar Darwin not know this? Why was Darwin wrong about that? Because, of course, he was wrong about many things. And I said, well, he was on, he was on, he's 22 years old. He's on a wooden ship. I mean, how, how would he know uh, the things we know now? And then later in life, when he went back to England and never left again, he didn't bother to read Gregor Mendel's paper. So he didn't know even about genetics. Uh, so there's another shot of the beagle. And this is the beagle on the 10-pound uh, the note for a while in the UK, in Britain. Anyway, uh, biogeography is a big part of uh, the history of Darwin, the history of Wallace, Humboldt, people like that, and it has helped us put together how life on Earth has has moved around. So I want I want to just mention that these are, I just wanted to show you the photos. Darwin studied mockingbirds. Actually, everyone points to his finches. He was a little inept, perhaps, with the finches. He wasn't exactly sure what he had, what species were different or not, and he even mixed up the labels from the different islands. But when he brought it back to Britain, uh, Gould, the famous ornithologist, sort, sorted it all out for him and. And they put together an interesting uh, view of adaptation and, and radiation into different species after only a, a, short, a relatively short period of time in evolution. We now know two million years from other analysis. Now, what about the third thing I mentioned, anatomy? Some things are called homologous because they actually have evolved over time and we can match up the bones between the limbs of many vertebrates one to one. We can understand how these things have changed. Same in the insect kingdom. Uh, there are strange quirks, sexual selection. The, the way that a breeder can cross pigeons or dogs or guppies to produce wild colors, um, female animals can do that with the males. And actually, the females are breeding colorful males, peacocks. The peacock's tail obviously has very little adaptive value in avoiding predators. But the females go for that, and therefore the next generation has more of it, more of it, more of it. And they end up into this accelerating race to be colorful uh, to no purpose except to attract females. So sexual selection is a very, very interesting thing. I might come back to that YouTube video in a minute. Maybe I'll even put it up while we eat. Yeah. Okay, bower birds. Has anyone seen David Attenborough's... Uh, uh, video on bowerbirds. They in the in the distant past they collected a few colorful things together to attract mates. Well, they, that did get them more mates, and over time they were collecting more and more things together. And so now bowerbirds actually will collect all of the blueberries, all of the orange berries, all of the colorful things, all of the bits of moss of a certain silvery sheen into little piles in front of a gigantic nest. It's like an arms race to get the females. No sensible adaptive value, really, except to get females. And evolution does not really make sense. It doesn't really have a, 
it makes sense as a mechanism, but it doesn't make any sense as a goal. There's no goal in evolution. It's just to get through the next generation, increasing your own contribution to the next one. And that's what they're doing. So they ended up into this bizarre, like the bird of paradise, for example, in this bizarre race to be the weirdest and, and attract the females. And the females will come and sit and look at them and evaluate them and decide to reject that one, but take one that's got an even more fantastic castle full of junk and it works for them. Okay, uh, here's an interesting story. I hope I have time before we break uh, to tell you this one. Uh, this is a particularly peculiar thing. Now, in the fish, in fish anatomy, they have a little two-chambered heart, and they have these uh, uh, aortic arches that uh, deliver uh, uh, blood up to where it's needed, and they have some nerves that cross each one, and everything is fine. Later, there were amphibians and reptiles and so on, and eventually some of them had necks, which fish don't have. Did you ever notice that about fish? No necks. So their plan was quite good. However, you transfer that to reptiles and mammals, and it goes really wrong. Uh, so in a human, uh, what we have here, I'm not sure if you can see, but we have those... Uh, we have those nerves, the little dark red ones, looping down underneath the aorta and coming back up again. So it loops from the brain down because it's tangled. It's tangled with the blood work and then comes back up to the, to, to the larynx. Not too bad because our neck's only this long, right? Not too bad. But as progression over time uh, affected these things, what happened to these poor animals like the giraffe or the brontosaurus, the brachiosaurus. There's no going back and saying, wait a minute, let's erase that and just put it on the other side. There's none of that. Each one is just a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. You end up with this crazy, crazy thing where the giraffe, the nerve to go from the brain to the larynx really only needs to go a few inches, but it goes 15 feet all the way down to the heart to go around that loop and then all the way back again. And it's because it went generation by generation by generation by generation over hundreds of thousands or millions of generations. And it's just, it worked. If you want to go on YouTube sometime and see the dissection of a giraffe, it's a fascinating thing to see how long, unbelievably long this laryngeal nerve is. So on the internet, I happened to see this. Somebody was making fun of the poor giraffe. Needs to be a few inches longer, takes a 15-foot detour. <laughs> And unfortunately, it's the same with many other systems, including the male reproductive system. Here's the uh, vas deferens, which takes a great big loop around the, uh, the uh, uh, urination ductwork. Uh, whereas really, if it just went underneath, everything would be fine. But instead, it's longer and longer and longer and longer, and it becomes a complicated mess. Same is true. Uh, Many, many anatomists say about the human reproductive system. Um, one anatomist describes it as a mess. Um, uh, Francisco Iala, the population geneticist, said that if an engineer produced the, fem the human female re uh, reproductive system, he would be fired the next day. <laughs> he also pointed out that that crazy system is responsible for millions of spontaneous abortions every year, and yet there it is. It's just a fact. He has an interesting statement. He says evolutionary biology is kind of a gift to the ultra-religious people because it lets the divine off the hook. It says, 
you don't have to explain anymore why he's killing those those babies because it's not his fault. <laughs> it's biology. It's evolution. Now, a lot of times people associate evolution, of course, with Charles Darwin, so I couldn't avoid talking about him a little bit here. His 1859 book, Origin of Species, changed everything. It had a long, long title on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And by popular demand, he changed that in later editions to the origin of species. So that's what we still call it now. But it really ought to be called the origin of adaptation because in a way, he didn't really know how species originated. He didn't really get that. He didn't get a lot of things. He didn't know about DNA. He knew that blending wasn't right. At the time, a lot of people thought, well, the mother and father get together and some chemicals blend together. Well, anyone who's ever done watercolor in grade three knows that's not going to hold because you mix all the colors together and what do you get? You get purple-brown. It's not going to work. So he rejected that. Uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who worked with him a little bit in the beginning, never really understood that uh, or didn't accept it. They argued about it. But these, these things were arguments that are recounted in many, many letters, thousands of letters, these, these people wrote letters like we write emails. Some of us write emails. And those are online now. There's a Darwin online, there's a Wallace online. So if that side of evolution interests you, you can, you can easily find that online. But I just want to point out, since I'm mentioning Darwin, what did he say exactly? It's very simple. He really only said, if you read his books, uh, in between the natural history and the, in the, in the, you know, the wildlife the stories that he writes and so on. Uh, natural populations produce more progeny than can possibly survive. It's more than they need to replace. And they show variation. And because they show variation, you know, there's fast bunnies and slow bunnies and so on, some of those have a better shot at contributing to the next generation. And, and those traits are inherited. Therefore, over time, things shift. That's really all Darwin said. And I think most people have a gut feeling that that probably does work, and it is true. And certainly pigeon breeders, cattle breeders, and so on understand these sorts of concepts. But that's really what he said. Now, natural selection is what Charles Darwin called the selection that's done by nature, as opposed to a breeder. Uh, and it's not all natural selection. We have genetic drift. We have mutation. We have things uh, that, that affect it. But in the end, and mating choice and so on, like I said, in the end, that's the change over time and the result. Now, what did Darwin see? And this is the important thing. That was what he said. What did he see that makes us remember him? Even though his book hardly had any illustration at all, it had a, 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 a rather bad-looking line graph that was based on a sketch that he made one day, but which we still honor. I put it on a cake that we had a little, little party here. And I use this cake photo to illustrate this good boy taking pineapple rather than cake. Uh, on his plate, I noticed that only after I took the photo. But what did he see? Well, what he saw was all the amazing diversity of the earth because he traveled for four and a half years as a young person. Uh, wild and crazy species from all over and the linkages between them and the fact that on each continent, each island, they seem to be a little bit like the fossils of that particular region all these things. I've thrown in a human there doing what we do, draw attention to ourselves. That's what Darwin saw, and he recognized that these things would eventually be shown to be related. He had no way to know that he would be right. He had no way to even understand the mechanism, but he did put it together. Well, the, the news media wasn't very happy with Darwin. 
And so they had things like this in the Times. There's a gorilla crying and pointing at Darwin for making his life miserable. Uh, here's a big uh, circle of evolution with Darwin sitting in the middle. And actually in Britain, I bought one, uh, an original Times that I found in a bookstore uh, that had a, 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 a mean schoolmaster evolving into a parrot, which the boy being punished could then poke with a stick. I don't know what it means either, but evolution was on everybody's mind at the time. And, but I like this particular one. I was only going to use one funny historical quote. The wife of the bishop of Worcester said, Descended from monkeys? Let us hope that it's not true. But if it is true, let us hope that it does not become widely known. <laughs> Now, I want to point out, if you know, I'm talking mostly about evolution, but there is a creationist uh, side to this discussion today, if you want to have it. And not everyone has a problem with evolution. At least two popes said it makes sense to them. And in fact, Pope, pope uh, Benedict here in 2007 said, this clash is an absurdity because on one hand, there's much scientific proof in favor of evolution, which appears as a reality that we must see and which enriches our understanding of life and being as such. Uh, perhaps religion should not feel the need to, to uh, unhorse science in order to stay uh, in its position. And, and he recognized that, I think. And the media wasn't very kind to the creationists. In the past, they were unkind to the evolutionists, and now they have things like all the evidence of evolution on one side and faith on the other, with this guy putting his, his arm on the scale. Uh, or this one, the scientific method. Here are the facts. What conclusion can you draw? Or the other method. Here's the conclusion. What facts can you find to support it? <laughs> and my favorite. For the last time, stop following me. I'm a creationist. Uh, I won't go into this case very much, but if you ever wanted to read about the legal side, uh, the Kitzmiller versus Dover uh, area school district is a fascinating one. Uh, Judge Jones was an appoint, appointee from uh, by George Bush, a uh, strong Republican, and it seemed to be in line with the thinking of some of the people who were in favor of teaching uh, intelligent design and genesis as science in school. And yet what he came up with was finding for the plaintiffs, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the parents who were taking the school to court. He said the religious nature of of intelligent design, uh, I had to pause and think intelligent design because this population geneticist who talked about the human reproductive system kept calling it inept design. When I, I sat on a, a panel with him, um, I'll go back to him for just a second and tell one more thing. I sat on a panel with Francisco Ayala. He was very old and very much admired, but we were in Washington, D.C. It was me, Francisco Ayala, and two Catholic bishops. First of all, I was nervous about them. But I was also nervous about sitting next to the man that wrote the textbooks I took as an undergraduate. And uh, Francisco Ayala said one thing. He said, okay, I'll just finish with this comment of his. Um, everybody's arguing about whether we're, the DNA shows that we're 97.5% similar to chimps or 98% similar to chimps or 97.9% similar to chimps. But we're, fit, we're forgetting that the DNA evidence shows that we're 30% banana. 
So I'll stop there. Uh, if after we eat you'd like to see the standard 10 creationist arguments against evolutionary theory and why none of them hold water, unfortunately, because it's nice to have opponents that actually have an argument, um, I've got those on some slides and I could show them. Or we can just talk about uh, your favorites. Like if we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys or uh, things like that. Thanks. Do you want to run the video? Do you want to run the video? Oh, sure.